Hello, everyone. Um, my name's Richard Harvey. I'm one of the uh, Gresham College professors. Uh, my position is sponsored by the Worshipful Company of Information Technologists, who are one of the City of London's livery companies. If you want to know more about them, then um, zoom along to their website, uh, and you will find that, like a lot of livery companies, they have a mission of doing uh, good works, and um, at least uh, one of those good works is sponsoring these lectures, which means paying me to uh, talk about things of interest. And in this series, we're talking about um, the effect IT might have on various aspects of society. So um, I have been selective. I haven't picked the whole of uh, society to talk about. I've, I've picked some interesting bits of society. And in this lecture, I want to talk about the university. And um, it's a fascinating topic, actually. Although I work at a university in my, in my other role, I work at the University of East Anglia as a professor of computer science, um, I, I became sort of acutely aware when preparing for this lecture of something I've referred to previously, which is a sort of culture war between venerable institutions and the IT industry. And working as a computer scientist, we're sort of pretty familiar with that... Um, that idea that the IT industry is full of sort of um, young people in jeans who think with a few lines of pearl code they can sort that problem out, can't they? Very, you know, thank you very much. And some of our more venerable institutions uh, don't think like that at all. So in this lecture, we're going to see those culture wars uh, in a rather tense way. And it doesn't help, of course, that a lot of people have massive preconceptions about what a university actually is. And the problem is, I think they remember it from their childhood. Well, not childhood, their studenthood, you know. Um, and um, for a lot of people, they look at pictures that look a bit like this, I think. This is a, this is a seminar from um, 1240. Um, and it's a scribe here um, demonstrating to his, his pupils how to correctly inscribe a book. Um, and a lot of people have looked at these sort of things and said, ho, 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 you know, uh, here's another one. This is a, this is a lecture from um, uh, mid-1300s. And they look at lectures like this. And it is typical, by the way, of sort of digital evangelists. Digital evangelists are people who rave enthusiastically about technology to put up slides like this um, and show, oh, look, uh, this chap looks so... And look at these people at the back. They're whispering at the back, and this person's fallen asleep. It's so dull. How little it has changed, says the digital evangelist at this point. And at that point, they segue into uh, some very enthusiastic pitch for technology, which generally involves the poor university shelling out millions of quid, uh, usually rather slowly so that they don't notice, on some disastrous technology which provides no learning gain whatsoever. So, um, and I think, just to sort of put things in perspective, it's probably fair to say that up to maybe the late 60s, this pretty much was what people experienced at university. So a lot of these sort of old folks who are um, uh, doing some of these commentary, for them, their university was indeed decidedly medieval. Um, indeed, my own education was perhaps a little bit medieval. But the truth is that in the 70s, something sort of quite fresh and exciting happened, at least in uh, the United Kingdom, which we live in. Probably it led the world. And that thing was the Open University. Um, and um, 
following on from that, there were a number of sort of replicators and uh, copyists of the Open University model, and it has been surprisingly effective. And um, in the transcript, you'll see some numbers that indicate the effectiveness of the um, OU. I should say the transcript also has quite a few caustic remarks about university. They're, they're meant to be amusing, um, and they're written from an insider's perspective, so um, it's full of little, uh, little in-jokes. So if, you, if uh, those people watching online or people uh, watching physically, uh, for once you can read my transcript and be entertained. Um, so this model was uh, very sort of prevalent in people's minds. And really what happened in around uh, 2012 was there was a big sort of quite dramatic shift in the model of a university. And one of the ways in was a digital evangelist sort of moaning that things had changed very little. And another way in was to talk about the digital uh, human, digital how there's a digital generation and they're, they're changing. I'm not going to touch on that until the end of this lecture because I think that's interesting too. That is an interesting sort of idea, the idea that uh, digital natives, as they're called, uh, are somehow fundamentally different from the rest of us who are, by implication, not digital natives. Boomers, in my case. Um, so I, I've picked selectively out of the, the history because I think it's entertaining, makes a good story. Um, as usual with all histories, um, if only there was a good historian of technology to take this apart for us, uh, but it's probably a little bit too... 2012 is hardly what historians get interested in. But I've picked a sort of a few little moments that I think are indicative of the way EdTech, as it's called, educational technology, is going. And one of the influential uh, reports that came out um, in about 2012, I think formally it was 2013, um, but it had been knocking around the sector before then, uh, was something called an avalanche is coming. And the avalanche of coming, uh, was coming, is coming was a very sort of influential report. And essentially it told a sort of story of catastrophe, um, which is always popular in, in uh, the university sector. And um, I could sort of pick out... Um, our belief is that deep, radical and urgent transformation is required in higher education as much as in school systems, perhaps as a result of complacency, caution or anxiety, and a combination of all three, the pace of change is too slow. And the reason was, all of these reasons I explained, you know, that people didn't learn in lectures anymore and all that sort of stuff. And um, what was interesting about this, and I think what made it so influential, were the people who were named. So the, the preface was written by Larry Summers. Larry had just finished uh, being a president of Harvard, uh, very interesting man. He was also on the National Economic Commission for uh, several US presidents. Had a lot of respect. And his view was that it's all going to change and a lot of industries have been reformed by digital and uh, ours was next. And, uh, and then Lord Putnam is always good for a quote. I, I've never quite worked out why Lord Putnam is seen as knowing anything about education. I mean, he was a... He, 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 and I don't want to be rude about Lord Putnam. I enjoyed his films very much, but I mean, he hardly has track record as an educationist. I mean, I think sitting on the board of a couple of local colleges hardly qualifies you knowing anything at all. Um, but anyway, he was he was uh, picked out, uh, and then this chap here was kind of interesting. He came, went on to be interesting because Sir Michael Barber now is uh, president of the Office for Students. So the Office for Students is an entity in the United Kingdom that keeps all the universities in line. It's one of the most misnamed institutions on the planet. It has no interest in students whatsoever. Uh, 
It is interested in ministers, so it should be called the Office for Ministers, particularly education ministers. So its main function is to take every waking thought from the current education minister and convert it into some bureaucratic regulation which, improve, which uh, increases our cost base. You know. So um, anyway, Michael Barber was very influential because he just finished the nudge unit uh, work, which, if you remember, this was a way of... And he'd been very sort of... Um, What's the word? Him and him and Lord Adonis, who he's since fallen out with, were were very sort of uh, fond of um, changing the civil service from the inside, and they, he wrote a very set of very interesting books about government, which, to be fair, qualifies him more to be in the office of students, the chairman of the office of students, than many people who are associated with that entity. So that's good. Um, now. I'm going to give you a little bit of sort of political background to world higher education systems, otherwise I don't think you can properly get this all in perspective. And the reason I'm going to do that is because if you watch any other presentation on EdTech, none of this will be mentioned at all. So the idea is that um, there are fundamental drivers, the world's going digital, people are changing, we have to do all of this. But behind, which is all might be true, but behind it are some additional pressures uh, that I've called forces that are really driving world higher education. And they're quite complicated. But, and they're worth just bearing in mind because you can see how some of these uh, proposals really address some of our sort of darkest fears. And that's, that's why they were adopted, of course. So the first one, uh, let's just pick one. Uh, let's start here. Demography. Demography um, has an effect on universities in several ways. Um, in the UK, for example, we're in the middle of a demographic dip, and that has led to some, rather, some sort of rather desperate tactics to recruit students, because there's very large revenues at stake. Um, that's also true to some extent in the US, so you, where you've got these falling demographies. Um, demographies are usually propped up by uh, immigration. So if we looked at, say, Scotland as a country, um, that has a very dramatically falling demographic of young people, unless you include Glasgow and Edinburgh, which have very substantial immigration into them, which props them up. So the Scottish universities that are near those, uh, those two cities are rubbing their hands, and the ones who are out in the middle of nowhere are feeling a bit anxious. Um, more importantly, you've got this huge growth of population in Africa, India, and to some extent China. In China... It's being addressed by vast uh, building of universities. There was a very entertaining story a few years ago saying that Chinese were building one university a week. And, you know, given that their ability to build hospitals, you could believe it. And a lot of it is private funded. Very, very impressive. Um, in India, it's a closed regulatory system. Uh, not easy to get foreign money in. Not clear how it's going to be addressed. There's a crisis coming there. And in Africa... Uh, there's a big demography, but there isn't the, there isn't the money and the infrastructure to, to build. So that's, that's one of the drivers. And then I suppose I should sort of set against that... Um, uh, what should we pick next? Well, perhaps, perhaps cost. Now, cost is a big issue in the USA. Um, there's an interesting stat in the USA, which is since 1986, tuition, which is uh, what Americans call the cost of being educated, has risen by nearly 600%. Um, there's very substantial increases in the cost of being educated in the US compared to the price of living, which has gone up by only 120%. 120%. So big, big sort of a change and an arms race of, between universities for facilities, uh, trying to appeal to out-of-state and international students. 
And that segues into competition, which has become very intense between uh, universities, more upon that later, but just um, I'll put it one way. Um, there are 4,000 universities in the United States of America. There are 350 in the UK. That seems like quite a lot, doesn't it? 350, UCAS lists 350 HEPs, or higher education providers, as they're called. So, and then we also have a sort of student demand, which is, this is not universal, but there is growing interest in going to university to get a job. Right? And some people think that's a very bad thing. Generally, academics who teach subjects that don't get you jobs think that is a very, very bad thing. Um, and academics who teach you, think, teach you subjects that do get you jobs think it's really very highly desirable. Um, but it, it, it's certainly growing, and so uh, that's, that's some tension. And then there's a political factor, which has become known as deglobalization. but that's, that's really um, nationalist or, or um, populist politicians who believe it would be a good idea if things were kept at home. So... And as we shall see, that's a very difficult strategy for a modern university. And it's actually quite a threat to ed tech and the digital university, because the digital university is going to be driven by demand um, to internationalise. OK, so that's some of the background. I think I'm going to skip this slide, which talks a little bit about what universities do. Um, I will say, generally speaking, people would regard universities as having three missions, as they're called. One is called teaching. One is called research. Uh, the other is called other stuff, right? It's known as the third leg, usually, sometimes called enterprise and engagement. And if you're going to talk about digital universities, we should talk about all three of the legs. I put a fourth one on here, which is scholarship. Um, scholarship is the old business of writing books and doing what I'm doing now, actually, which is taking other people's results and presenting them in some coherent form. Scholarship is really heavily on the wane in all world universities, particularly in Britain. In Britain, uh, all of government money piles into research, and this bit isn't incentivised at all. So Gresham College is a sort of last bastion, really, of decent uh, scholarship, and long may it remain. And this has been much commented on, you know, do universities have a social mission? Yes, everyone accepts that. Does it include writing books? Mm, not sure. Uh, does it include giving public lectures? Well, probably. Uh, does it include taking large amounts of money for industry to do research? Oh, definitely. You know, so very sort of, quite sort of um, quite sort of um, what's the word? Venal, perhaps um, uh, view of what the mission is. I'll give you a flavour of that competitive segment. I'm just going to focus for a moment on the UK because it's a nice sector and it has lots of. Uh, money available. This is taken from an article by Mark Corver, who used to be head of analytics at UCAS. He now runs a very interesting data company called Data HE, which you can employ to tell you how many students you're likely to have in the future, amongst other things. This is his analysis of how much money, revenue, at British universities came via a competitive route, meaning the students could have gone elsewhere. There wasn't some cap or some structure on it. And because of government deregulation... This segment here is the English universities. So the effect of deregulation in the English universities was very dramatic. This is Wales and this is Scotland. So I'm going to be try and be careful, but I might be talking quite exclusively about this big segment because I'm sitting in it and I, you know, one feels the heat a bit. Very interesting. And it's become big business, as Mark <coughs> attempts to show. It's a little bit difficult to convert universities into 
the equivalent of uh, FTSE companies. Uh, so what he's done is done a sort of revenue to market cap uh, conversion, uh, and you can log into the article and look at it. We're giving this talk in the middle of City of London, so there's probably 15 people in this audience who are going to faint at the at the precise way he's done it because we're we're in the centre of expertise for doing market cap calculations. But broadly speaking, he went through the FTSE top 350 companies, tried to work out what share of those companies were working in various sectors, then compared it to education on the basis of revenue, and higher education turned out to be enormous. In fact, it's um, the largest sector in the FTSE uh, 350. And there were about 20 universities on his measure who might sit somewhere in the FTSE 250. Big, uh, quite decent-sized businesses. Oxford's income is about £2.2 billion pounds a year. Um, so that's 2 times 10 to the 9 for people watching from overseas British billions. Okay? So that's, you know, it's not enormous, but it's, it's pretty big. It's pretty big business, and there's quite a lot of revenue at stake. Uh, not all tuition revenue. So obviously, when you're that large, you start to think of yourself as a global brand. You start to think of you're making yourself wanting to be accessible to a very wide range of people. And it is very possible to enter a sort of hyper-competitive market where it can be quite tough. Now, I've been talking a bit about uh, British HE. The reason I haven't talked about US HE, which is a dominant, one of the dominant players of the market, because this was done already brilliantly in a nice uh, film called Ivory Tower. I'm just going to play you the trailer for it because it segues into a number of things that I'd like to talk about uh, in a moment. When you start college, that's the time when you have the chance to experiment, when you have the chance to open yourself up to new things, when you can discover who you are and who you might become. Tell me one thing. Yes. Is my daughter going to have a job and she's not going to come back home after it's done? The very concept of the institution of higher learning is about to be broken. Our nation's combined student loan debt has now hit $1 trillion. College tuition has increased more than any other good or service in the entire U.S. economy. It's like a subprime mortgage broker that ripped you off. Original balances in the tens and twenty thousands of dollars, ballooning up into hundreds of thousands of dollars. If I do ever have kids, my private loans will be directly passed to them, even if I die. It's a nightmare. The government will make $184 billion off our kids trying to get an education. Colleges have turned into these large businesses. It's a feeding frenzy to outbuild your rivals. It created a race. You've got to cater to out-of-state students who want to party. Some of our leading presidents can be quite shameless in the size of their compensation. The older generations that criticize the millennials grew up in a time when you could go to a state university and pay your way through with summer jobs. There's going to be a collapse. People just don't want to pay for it anymore. All sorts of things that got us into this mess and it wasn't the cost of educating the students i want this for my kids it's just too bad it costs sixty thousand dollars a year peter teal is offering college students a hundred thousand dollars if they drop out of school and start their own business if you didn't go to college what would you do instead when i went to school there was no way to access the services that higher education provided now you can't I want to better myself. If I dropped out of Harvard, I'm back where I started. What kind of a society do we want to be? America has been all about critical thinking. There 
has to be a change coming. Yeah, well, it was delightfully apocalyptic, wasn't it? Um, and uh, I think those of us who were working in the British system at times sort of rub, rubbed our hands with glee, really, thinking, ha-ha, they're the Americans. Um, it won't affect us. Well, there are themes there that you'll see are common across the international uh, higher education agenda, and higher education is a very international agenda anyway. Um, just to pick out a couple of things um, mentioned in that film, one was Peter Thiel, scholarship. The idea is that... Um, you don't need to go to university, and it would be a good idea if you didn't, um, and I'll pay you a lot of money to go and start a business instead. Um, not sure if Peter Thiel gets um, any financial interest in those uh, uh, businesses that are started, but I'll take a bet. Um, Deep Springs College, California, very interesting. It's, I think it's free tuition, um, and it's men only, I think. Uh, but you work on the ranch in the morning... And then in the afternoon, you get free lessons on Schopenhauer or whatever, whatever your major is. So that's interesting. Uncollege is part of a, a, a sort of phase called DIYU. So the example there is there's all this stuff online. You don't need to do a degree. You just construct your own degree, make a program, and uh, off you go. And there have been several people who have done blogs on this. And there's a book, I think, called DIYU, which will um, explain how you can do it. Uh, so... The, Credentialing is the issue there. How do you credential it? And Minerva is one of the more famous ones. Minerva was same idea. We're not going to have any classrooms. Everybody learns everything online, don't they? And people learn by doing. So let's just do stuff, and we'll put you in a. But we'll put you in a very small class size. I think Minerva promises no more than 19 students in a class. So for reference, British higher education might run. 25 to 1 staff-student ratio. So 19 to 1 is not too bad. You know, It varies a lot by university. So Oxford and Cambridge, and indeed my own university, are very good staff-student ratios, but you know they can get quite high uh, for, for various reasons, not least of which is money. Now, so that's education, and it's the education agenda that people tend to talk about when they're talking about the digital university. But the threats aren't only uh, in that agenda. So if we look, turn to research... Research is generally measured in all sorts of interesting ways. Paper count might be one. How much money you've got is another. The one that people are tending to fail at the moment is what's called field-weighted citation impact. I don't really have enough time to explain what this is, but it's a sort of normalisation for the fact that in medicine, everything gets published. They publish vast amounts, of, and they all refer to each other. So there's hundreds and hundreds of citations. So if you're normalised by that effect, then you can measure essentially whether papers were highly cited, meaning they were read by others, or not. So, uh, you know, you always log in nervously to see whether anyone's reading your uh, papers, and if you're highly cited, you ring up your, your boss, your president, and ask for a pay rise. OK, so this is a measure by country. Uh, Britain is, is paranoid about whether it's got um, strong research base, and it's rightly paranoid because it doesn't spend enough money on it. So... Um, the government is constantly demonstrating, ha-ha, look how efficient we are. Um, and they do that by measuring FWCI, and that looks very nice for the UK. But I'm not interested in the, these countries. I'm interested in this country. Right? Very dramatic. Right? And the reason uh, American and British universities are falling down the league tables is nothing to do with their own performance. It's, it's pretty constant. It's to do with the arrival of very large government funds into a selected set of... Chinese universities. This is driven by a small number of uh, Chinese partners. 
So this is also part of the uh, uh, milieu, as it like, and we can see that the dominant player in terms of share of the market, if you like, for the US is on the slide, and the uh, big change here, we're also just turning the corner a bit on the down, and China is on the up. And I guess we might identify um, the reason for that. Well, let's just pop back. Uh, so these points here, these are crossover points. So this is when various countries panic that uh, China is doing better than them. So we should have had our panic in 2016. We were busy doing something else at the time, so somehow we missed it. But um, this is, sorry, uh, obviously this one, this crossover point here, when do you think that will be? 20, 2021, something like that, will be in a very interesting point. At that point, China is a scientific uh, superpower. Okay, lots of caveats with these, but they, they paint a picture, I think, of what's happening to uh, universities. And I did want to get to this. There's a very strong relation between a share of international publication and citations as it happens. So everybody knows that if you want to get a highly cited paper, you're much better off having a co-author from outside of your own country, and preferably across the globe. Makes sense, really, doesn't it? You know, people tend to tend to focus on their own uh, people they know. Right. All of that is in the back of our mind, and at this point, um, something. In around 2012, the British are having, and the Americans, are having a right old flap. And they're having a flap about these things called MOOCs, massively open online courseware. I hope I've got that the right way around. Maybe it's open online. But anyway, the idea is uh, extremely large courses. Now, no one's quite sure what the first MOOC really was, and various people claim it. I've made, some, uh, I've made a sort of claim that it's peer-to-peer -peer university, P2PU, which was funded by the Hewlett Foundation, and then I had a panic this afternoon that I couldn't really find the evidence for it, and maybe it wasn't that massive. Um, but certainly by the time we got to these players here, edX comes out of MAT, um, Udacity is another one, Udemy, and um, Coursera. Uh, they all have, uh, I think all bar one, have sort of universities at home. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people were, were enrolling on modules at these universities, remotely and there was a sort of really what's a sort of romantic spirit around and the idea was we'll put our courseware online and you think well what does that mean well we'll video all of our lectures and we'll put them up and we'll put up all the worksheets and we'll put up everything we can and people will just be able to access these things and it will be amazing you know and we'll cure the African deficit in education and so on and so on and so on so at this point um, FutureLearn, which was the British version of this, didn't exist. The British government had a right old panic, and uh, David Willits, who was the education minister at the time, uh, rang up Malcolm Bean, who was running the Open University at the time, who, of all universities, had this most enormous track record on this, and said, we've got to do something, because uh, the Americans will eat the market. So, they, so FutureLearn was born. Um, much to the annoyance of people at the Open University, it was born without much input from the Open University at all. It was a separate entity. And much to the annoyance of a lot of the higher education sector, a number of vice-chancellors were invited down to the education minister's uh, office and essentially told that they were signing up for this, weren't they? Um, my vice-chancellor was one of them at the time. Well, we later discovered that not all vice-chancellors had been invited to come to the meeting. Um, and only the 
good universities had been invited. So that was very pleasing. I mean, in Britain, if you want to annoy people, you can always rely on the class system, and Britain has a class system in its university, so it's very pleasing to discover that you were in the upper class, um, and very annoying if you weren't invited, and there was much gnashing of teeth and rage and, and so on and so on. But anyway, FutureLearn came into, into being, and then it widened its... Uh, it broadened its appeal, thank goodness, so that now anyone can join. And it, it was mobile first, so you can get all of these courses on your mobile. Wonderful websites, really good. Log in and log in and do it. It's great fun. I've done a number of their courses. And if you would like to do them in French, then there's a, a France Université Numérique, which is the equivalent. It's called Fun, uh, which I merely mentioned for the pleasure of putting fun on my slide. Okay. Well, this sounds well all well and dandy and pretty exciting. Um, huge sums of money were pumped into these things um, without any educational evidence whatsoever. Um, and I think it's fair to say that as an educational product, they were spectacularly disastrous. I mean, they were... I mean, I'm sorry to say this, because I, I really enjoyed working with... Well I, well, I do enjoy working with Future Learn. They're very good people, and I, I, I've been a consumer of these uh, products myself. Um, what they discovered was that the people who were logging in and using them were people like me. They were professors, right? People who, in other words, and middle-class people who had been to university. People who had already learned how to learn were the people who were very keen on using them. People who didn't know how to learn either couldn't access them or didn't know how to learn. So the whole thing was a disaster. Um, if you took a module at UEA and you asked what was the dropout from that module, so that's people who don't complete it, it would be very small indeed. Even in the US, where module dropout can be part of the system, it, it, these are small, small numbers. You know, if somebody's got 10% dropout from a module, you think, wow. I mean, in the UK, if you had 10% dropout from your course, that's your overall, that would be... You'd be starting to worry a bit about that. There would be, have to be good reasons for that. And you'd be expecting people to score, you know, above 50%. On them. So these, these courses... When people started measuring the dropout, 90% dropout, you know, retention was minuscule, absolutely tiny. So at that point, there was a very rapid re-evaluation, and suddenly MOOCs weren't about that at all. They were providing access to people, and of course, they weren't really dropping out. They were sort of coming back in again, and they were skimming it, like, like you watch YouTube, you know. Like, and the way you watch YouTube is not watch it at all, right? You know, you sort of skim through it, look, going through the boring bits. Um, I noticed a YouTube, uh, these lectures go out on YouTube, as I'm sure you're aware, and there's always a bit of chit-chat at the beginning of a lecture where I say who I am and acknowledge the sponsors and so on, and somebody always grimly writes at the bottom, actual lecture starts at 1 minute 13, you know. So <laughs> angry that we haven't actually got straight into it. One of these days I'm going to start with no preamble at all and go into the middle of an equation and see how people are like that. So... It was terribly romantic, the MOOC. And if you watch programmes on MOOCs, you'll see them talking about rock star professors. The idea is that there's only one guy who really needs to teach linear algebra, and that's Gilbert Strang at MIT. He's written the great book. So everybody should watch Gilbert Strang teach linear algebra. And um, the linear algebra course at, at the University of Poppleton is a waste of time. People just log in and learn it. Completely and utterly wrong. Um, nevertheless, they were... Uh, Great idea. They are much loved by uh, retired middle-aged people who are interested in ancient history and like to have a few 
nice lectures, and they're much import they've enriched the intellectual lives of uh, the world, and I, for that they must be very commended. But they are not the digital university; they are MOOCs. So very rapidly they had to evaluate themselves and work out what to do, particularly as they'd sold a lot of shares to people who presumably wanted something to happen. So they became spooks, um, special purpose online open courseware, perhaps often not open, um, or they became OPMs. By the way, there can be a lot of acronyms in this, in this talk. Um, all universities love TLAs three-letter acronyms, um, and uh, we've got some four-letter acronyms as well. Uh, so OPMs, or Online Program Managers, um, they are a more complex beast. And the idea behind an OPM, or a Get Online Provider, is they would rock up to you... Sorry about this slide, I'll talk you through it. I know you haven't got uh, the visual acuity of an eagle, uh, but I wanted to put it up to give you some idea of the complexity of the market. This is a, a sort of regular update that's done by Phil Hill, who runs a blog on um, EdTech. And uh, what he's done is he's gone through all of the providers that he can think of and try and classify them as either delivering degree, undergraduate degrees, bachelor's degrees, or master's degrees, or something else, and whether they certificate or not. So a big issue is who issues the certificates. Uh, is the university the credentialing agency? Do you use some other credentialing agency? Can you do micro-certificating? Can you use badging? Badging is where you get a small certificate and you put the badges together to get module credit and then you put module credit together, etc., etc. All of these flexes are possible. And when you're pitched these, there's been delightful pitches from various people, uh, you get you know, very, very interesting uh, reasons as to why they might be um, the right way to do things. Uh, let's just pick some out. So right at the top here... We've got Pearson Online Education. Pearson, a huge company based uh, just down the road in, in London, have huge interests in online education. And um, I, I can't remember if I mentioned, but both uh, all of the authors of the Avalanche Coming uh, report worked for Pearson. For some reason, and as did Lord Putnam at the time. So for some reason, we didn't clock this and... Um, I remember being surprised when I'm researching this lecture to discover quite how many people who produced this very influential report that caused such disturbance in the sector actually worked for an organisation that was frankly rather interested in there being a disturbance in the sector. But anyway, um, still a very good read. Um, to you are, uh, are uh, quite an interesting get online company. Who else have we got here? Um, some of the big players in education anyway, Kaplan, for example, big US company. They do foundation courses in all around the world, but they also there's a Kaplan University, they do various other things. Um, some of these are the MOOCs down here, and who else did I want to pick out? Oh, CEG, for example, uh, Cambridge Education Group, who he classifies as a hybrid. So they rock up to you. And these guys, and they say, well, Richard, we will take your course online and then you can access this wide range of learners. The, probably the most famous and early one was Academic Partnerships, um, a US Texas-based company. They worked with the University of Texas at... Oh, God. I think it's in UTA, Austin. Um, don't quote me on that. I think it's UTA. And um, they did online nursing programs. Very interesting to all of us because nursing you tend to think of as a very hands-on subject. Um, so they did a fantastic get online job. However, there was a problem with uh, get online providers, OPM providers, and the, the two problems have sort of 
dogged the sector for a while. And um, it's a bit unfair because to, there's no reason for these to be problems, but the first one is revenue. So the sort of offer that you might get from a get online provider, OPM, is, well, some of them offer 10%. So they take the revenue from a student, you, the university, who's providing the QA, the brand, and the course, you get 10% of the revenue. So that only works if you're going to get huge volumes, which generally they don't. They get okay volumes, can be quite nice. You know, AP did, academic partnerships did quite well, but that's a big problem. So you can't really... I mean, what can you say about that? You know, university presidents should be wiser, shouldn't they? You shouldn't sign up to deals like that. But it's sort of led the whole... It's cast a shadow, I think. And the other one is mis-selling. And, of course, that is highly selective. You know, there hasn't been any mis-selling in, in the United Kingdom or Europe. But there, the US has a very complicated education market. A number of people who are... Whilst they're not vulnerable, they are people who are... People like veterans, for example, are eligible for free tuition. So you could set up a telesales operation targeting veterans, persuading them to sign up to university courses that they might not be ultimately very well suited for. And if you did that, the state would pay you quite a lot of money. And, and that is precisely what had happened. So, um, And the reason for that is you know, there's a huge financial incentive to do so and not much regulation. So stories like that are, are alarming. But they do provide a good introduction to tech that already exists in universities because OPMs actually really are able to function because of the tech that already exists here. So there's a whole load of um, givens in my conversation already. So you, I said, well, you just capture the lectures. So yes, modern universities mostly have lecture capture built into the lecture halls, just like this lecture. Yeah, and the lecturer comes in and they press a button and... Sometimes they don't need to press a button. It's often li linked to the calendar. And it goes up into the cloud and it's tagged. And it can be beamed out live all around the world if you wish. But usually it goes onto some sort of uh, website where it is stored and redistributed to the student. And those websites that capture all of this are generally called VLEs or LMSs, uh, Virtual Learning Environments or Learning Management Systems. Uh, I've noticed VLE seems to be diminishing a bit doesn't quite sound as grand as an LMS, does it? Um, and there are, there are four out there. Um, the one that's on the, on the rise is a system called Moodle, which is a shareware system, so you pay for support. The one that is falling very dramatically is WebCT, which was bought by Blackboard and essentially decommissioned as Blackboard came, came on, although Blackboard itself has been losing horrendously market share in these various places, probably because it doesn't quite offer the facilities that one would wish. Um, and then this is a Norwegian one here. And Brightspace exists in the North American uh, market a bit there. They tend to specify in, in pre-education, made by a company called D2L. So learning management systems are the basis of all digital experiences for students. And just in case you're not aware of them, you know, they, they, they obviously uh, contain your lecture notes and your slides and the handouts and all those sorts of things and they can schedule things and you can do discussion boards and they usually have a virtual conferencing system so you can conference with your seminars, uh, seminar students and most importantly, so that's, that's great for the OPMs because they can just pick up that stuff and sort of beam it out to Lithuania or wherever they're, they're targeting 
So that all works very well. But most importantly, they applied some evidence of learning. So in my VLE, I can see who's logged in. I see. So somebody writes to me saying, oh, I'm terribly sorry I was sick and wasn't able to attend your seminar. So the obvious thing you might ask is, well, um, did they download the course notes beforehand like I asked them? Um, you know, or um, I, I was sorry that I wasn't able to uh, attend your lecture, but I have watched the lecture, so the VLE tells me whether they watched the lecture. So it, they have swings both ways, you know, it can be very effective. And that allows you to couple with artificial intelligence systems known as learner analytics. And um, learner analytics are quite new. Um, so the idea is that we're going to measure all of this data about our learners, and having measured all of that data, then things are going to be, you know, the learning experience is going to be highly, highly measured and adjusted. So this is, uh, this is from a, uh, a report from JISC, which is the Joint Information Subcommittee. It's a group of technical experts who serve British education, and it's sort of a um, geographical review of the... Um, the learner analytics um, landscape. And um, some of these statistics look a bit, sort of, look impressive, don't they? You know, um, uh, New York Institute of Tech, 74% of students who dropped out have been predicted as at risk by the data model, okay? Um, uh, students who obtain low grades use the virtual learning environment 40% less with C grades or higher. Um, what else have we got here? We can put some... Now, it's no accident, by the way, that a lot of this is US-driven. 12% um, more B and C grades, 14% did E and F grades. Now, I would say, as a sort of expert in the field, these are not staggering achievements. Um, and they... It's pretty typical for a module to move 10% marks year to year, just on the cohort and, you know, what the weather's like and those sorts of things. So if you're seeing figures that are... Uh, improvements of under 10%, you have a little bit of doubt, I think, about whether this is really worth the many hundreds of thousands of pounds that this will, will cost you to put in. Um, so, and then there's the deployment issue. So various, there are various deployments of learner analytics. I mean, the obvious one is to not tell me, the professor, but to tell the student. And that's usually what happens. So the learner analytics system says... Um, Hey, it uh, looks like you're going to fail. Um, what are you going to do about it? You know, well, more proactively, it usually says, "Why don't you do this, this, and this?" Um, and that this, this, and this has been sort of designed by a set of experts to hit the right triggers for that student. Um, I should point out a lot of the claims are not claims that are immediately obvious to me as being useful. So, for example, 74% had dropped out had been predicted as at risk by the data model. Well, that's nice to know. But I was really looking for they didn't drop out at all. You know, that, that's the issue, not identifying it. And you'll also notice that some of these statistics are put um, the wrong way round. So it's very much to the... Um, of the people who dropped out, we predicted this number. Well, that's even more useless, you know. I mean, we want to know before they drop out. Thank you very much. So um, that said, I don't want to be too rude about it. I mean, there's obviously some potential... In it, and um, I picked one example to give you an example of one of the the nice ones that I thought was very intriguing. Uh, this is a project done with Civitas. Uh, Civitas are uh, the world leading learner analytics program, and they were doing something with uh, University of West London. Um, and this was from a presentation given by um, the to, to 
two leaders at uh, University of West London. So what they'd done was, of course, they'd done all of the sort of login data, you know, how many times do you log into the VLE and all those sorts of things. And I think partly as an afterthought, they had also uh, measured the, um, the swipe into the campus. So uh, University of West London, I haven't been there, but I'm told, essentially has two entrances. You can swipe in this way, and this way you go down a into a sort of communal area with a cafe. You can swipe in this way, and this way you go down a sort of long corridor and it takes you straight to the lecture theatres. What they found was that the students who went down the long corridor were much more likely to drop out than the students who went through the cafe. Yeah, it's quite nice. Uh, well, not nice discovery, but it's a quite a surprising, intriguing discovery, isn't it? And uh, they're currently redesigning the campus to sort this out because the, it turned out that... Um, these choke points are quite handy. Um, one of the problems with dropout is it's not always the function of dropout, but one of the problems with dropout is that people drop out and by the time they're telling you that they were in trouble, it's too late. You can't have helped them. So um, it's a bit like if you see someone in mental distress, one of the best things you can do to them, I'm told, is to just say, are you all right? And sort of start a human conversation. So human advisors at universities are very good at doing this, and we're trained to do this, of course, uh, but you can't see everyone. So if you have a choke point and you have student services next to the cafe, as they did on one of these routes, and the students see it and it says, are you worried about your grades, then you'll get a lot of traffic, they'll catch them, and you'll stop drop out. So we think they think that's what's happened. They don't think it's anything about the cafe. Um, it, it might be. It might be just human contact. Isolation can be a problem for, for students in modern university, particularly if all they have to do is sit in their bedroom and watch lectures and they don't turn up for anything, which is another problem with lecture delivery, by the way. You know, the number of people who turn up for le physical lectures falls very dramatically when you beam lectures into people's bedrooms, as, as you'd expect. I mean, that's the, that's the point of it, if you like. It's, it's more personalised and they can take it at their own pace, but it has a cost, and the cost is that people like me who love talking to big lecture theatres because it polishes my ego and makes me think important, find themselves talking into a black vacuum with you know, a thousand students watching remotely. So it's a little bit disconcerting and needs a little bit of training. Okay, so that's the sort of thing that learner analytics can do. Now, up to this point, if I've been talking about the digital university, we're all on safe territory, really, and a sort of digital evangelist for university would be on safe, in safe grounds because it's all about teaching it's making the student experience better or cheaper. So if you think about those drivers I was talking about, you can see how the digital university can help you overcome the de demographics, it lowers cost, etc., etc. It's very, very uh, popular with the uh, university managers. What about research? Okay, well, research is fundamentally an international activity, as my citation metrics shown, and it's as old as the hills, international research, and technology was adopted as soon as it was available, so... I've certainly written papers where I, I couldn't actually recognise the author. In fact, that happened. Somebody came up to me at a conference and said, oh, Richard, it's Antonio, we wrote a paper together. And I said, oh, it's nice to meet you. I, I met him intellectually, of course. He had numerous emails, and right, but I didn't know what he looked like. Uh, and that's, that's, that's as old as the hills, that idea. What's new is driving your university strategy from the output of the, an analysis of the output. So that, that's called, usually called bibliometrics. Bibliometrics are potentially very powerful and are very, but very underexplored. So 
modern bibliometric system can sort your academics into the highly cited, the lowly cited. They can work out where I'm getting citations, from which country I'm getting citation. And I picked one project just to give you a flavour of that. This is from a university network called Aurora. I picked it rather selfishly because um, it was done by some friends of mine at the Free University of Amsterdam. Uh, UEA is a part of a network and we've been heavily involved in this. But, you know, there are others. Uh, I just picked this one because I happen to know about it. Uh, UEA and along with another university were very interested in the UN Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs. Could we work out how much of our research impacted on the various SDGs? Could we do a little sort of grid working out who, work, who does the most on, say, climate change or who does the most on oceans? Um, now, presidents love this stuff. I mean, they love it because they like to sort of boast amongst themselves. But it also it gives you a nice, coherent story for your funders. So what they did is they buzzed through every single paper published by all of our, what was it then, ten, nine or ten universities um, over the last, I think they took ten years. Uh, um, oh, this is a short one, eight years. Um, they mapped it to keywords that were associated with the Sustainable Development Goals and they looked through policy library documents looking for citations back to our work, which was the novel bit, and then they were able to map all of the universities in the Aurora network on their contribution to what a lot of people think is the right way to frame the world's problems. So it's really quite a powerful uh, technique, the bibliometric analysis is changing things. Now, these are all big, big sort of grand projets, aren't they? You know, they so you, you, you do a big deal with one of these manufacturers and... Um, to be perfectly, you know, they, they, they fulfil universities' desire to be global and to be grand and have a big impact. But what about a sort of more humdrum things, you know, like, like, like students and student life? Well, that has been a sort of slower, uh, s slower burn. Um, and under student services, you've got all sorts of things. I mean, I'll give you one example that I'm not going to talk about today. Huawei, who are much talked about in the United Kingdom, have a digital campus demonstrator that you can go and see just outside Shenzhen. Um, it's very interesting. They have uh, cameras everywhere. The cameras can identify everyone on campus at all times. Uh, so you don't need to bother with any of that boring registering in the lecture. We know who's in the lecture because we've got face recognition in the lecture. And if someone turns up who shouldn't be there, we can send the security guards right over to meet them. Very impressive in uh, one sense, uh, sort of thing. Wait, and, um, so a much smaller way, but much more important, I think, particularly in the, U in the Western countries, US, UK, and Australia, and New Zealand, is uh, student mental health. Okay, so there's a, there's a big increase in student mental health problems in uh, young people. It is not a problem associated with universities, just so we're clear about this. There is a general problem to do with student mental health. Universities are on the end of a chain, so they have the responsibility, but they're often, it is not uncommon to be at the end of what are a series of very serious problems. So what can be done? Well, I've got two little examples of sort of um, inputs that might be useful. This is a project from UEA. The Open Up UEA app is designed to prompt students and help students seek support both at UEA or more generally in Norwich for more specialist services. It's designed to make that as easy as possible and to try and remove some of the barriers to seeking support um, that we've found in our research. 
And this is the commercial variant of that, if you like, which is made by a company called Enlightened. Enlightened is run by the Student Room, who are one of the world's larger websites offering student advice. It's a peer-to-peer -peer website offering student advice. University can be an exciting time. Meeting, exploring, discovering. But it's challenging too. Study and money, relationships, well-being. To help you get the most from your time at uni, we've developed a new type of app called Enlightened. It's based on decades of research about the things that help students thrive in uni. And it's here to provide the personalized support you need for study, life, and well-being. So how does it work? Each week, you answer a few questions and you earn rewards to buy the things you want on campus and beyond. Based on your answers, you get tailored advice from experts and relevant opinions from students, putting knowledge in your hand before you know you need it. You can also suggest ideas to improve your uni and support other students' ideas. Your answers and your ideas anonymously go to your uni and the student reps. Uniquely, Enlightened turns those answers and ideas into a meaningful summary, showing your uni where to take action and how to respond. Of course, we take the greatest care with your privacy and you're in control of your anonymity. So you're free to give honest opinions and receive the advice you need. So that, together, we can make life better for you and the whole student community. Nice. So it's a nice idea, that, isn't it? It's a micro-mood measurement system. Uh, they're used in modern HR systems a bit as well. So if you're head of department, you get this sort of mood meter, and it says, oh, students are very unhappy. What have I done? You know? So one of the issues in a big university is giving this feedback loop called you said, uh, you said we did, uh, which is very important and enlightened. helps you do that. It also helps catch people who are feeling who are in, a, in crisis. OK, so... Um, I haven't really got time to talk about how digitizations affect these other activities, what I call the third leg. Um, so I'm feeling it's time for a bit of conclusion. So the first one is to say is that this idea that the digital university is a new idea, I don't think washes at all. It is quite a venerable idea, and there's at least the open university to prove that. Um, the harbingers of doom, namely our bosses at the Office of Students now, but you know the, the avalanche is coming and it's all dire, were, weren't right then, because I think they misunderstood the university's excitement about new technology, and they're certainly not right now. I mean, the, the vast majority of universities that, if you, if you went to university, the vast majority that you went to are already quite comprehensively digitised. That said, managing all this digital stuff is very tricky, and like all big organisations that are in transition, you know, we, we struggle, and you know, that manifests itself in all sorts of interesting ways. You know. So most universities do have a chief digital officer, and um, you do sometimes feel that we have a VP of hype, a VP of disruption, a VP of buzzwords. We have, we, I've certainly seen directors of strategy who can't spell strategy, um, and note pointedly, the manager of business results is vacant, uh, ladies and gentlemen, as it's so often the case in all digitization projects. I did promise to briefly say something about digital natives. An alternative evangelistic start for these talks is people are quite different from how they are uh, conventionally, and they'll show you this sort of video.
Yeah, she's pressing very hard and nothing's happening. It's very disappointing, isn't it? Yeah, I'll press it on my leg just to make sure it really is working. Yeah. Okay, you get the picture. Um, now, the only problem with this idea, so the idea is that everyone's completely changed and people learn differently and everything's different and we have to do everything in bite-sized segments and et cetera, et cetera, and the digital natives need uh, you know, special attention and universities have to change everything. The only problem with it is it's all wrong. Um, and um, there's a nice set of papers in the British Journal of Educational Technology, amongst others, by these authors, uh, Irish authors, which show it's pretty much phooey. And uh, people learn in pretty much the way they were learning in the Middle Ages, thank you very much. And there's quite a good reason why an hour is quite a good time for lecturing, if you want to cover anything serious, anyway. And um, as, as quoted in this, this paper, actually, um, they picked out this nice thing from uh, Marcel Proust. Now, I'm not really given to quoting from Marcel Proust, but I thought that this was a particularly apposite uh, Thing given this lecture. Okay, so that's how digital universities are changing, if indeed they are changing at all, which I have some scepticism about. The area where perhaps we might see some more dramatic changes, though, because they're not quite happening as quickly as I would wish, certainly as somebody who constantly has to engage with this, is healthcare. So, and that is the topic of next month's lectures. Thank you.